<laughs> it's funny. I, normally, I have a lot to say, but when I talk about my father, I sort of have to wait. My father didn't return to Kerala from the Gulf as any less of a man than. <laughs> Let me try again. From Mamaya Media, you're listening to Karama Sutra, chronicles from communities we've grown up with. I'm Vanita Bhardwaj. And I'm Chirag Desai. Here we are, nine months in. How do you feel so far? I'm proud that it's come this far. And to be honest, Chirag, I'm really relieved that we actually managed to sustain in spite of lockdowns. And I'm also looking forward to some time to plan the next season. What about you? Yeah, I, I went back a little bit to that first conversation or that brainstorm session that we had uh, at a cafe out here in Dubai when we could go uh, and how a lot of things just fell into place right away, right? Uh, especially the name, which was such an instant hint for us. It has been quite the ride. There was some experimenting from our end to see what sort of stories we enjoyed working on and equally which ones were the best received by you, our listeners. So a couple of housekeeping notes first. Uh, this episode closes out our first season. Since our launch in September, we've covered everything from the claimed first South Indian vegetarian restaurant in Dubai that opened 40 years ago to the stigmas around menstruation. That said, we also wanted to share that we will be back for a second season, which will begin on the 8th of October. And now, today's episode. The South Asian Gulf Connection runs deep. While it's easy to fall into the trap of nostalgia, what's fascinated me is the changing dynamic in the relationship, not just between countries, but in the demographic shift of the kind of South Asian that has their eye on the Gulf. Now, we're both Gulf-raised. You were born here. I arrived here on the cusp of adolescence. And while our memories are important, I think our relationship with the cities we've lived in and live in have been significantly defined by our parents before we decided to branch out on our own. Absolutely. I mean, the only reason I call myself a UAE kid is because of my parents who were already here before I was born. And then they built their entire lives, our childhoods, and their friendships and families here until it was time to retire. I'd even go so far as to say that it wasn't until maybe five years ago that I felt like I had a life in Dubai outside of the world that was linked to my parents. And my father retired at the end of May, after 30 years out here. And it's been extremely strange as it happened during the lockdown. And we're still in limbo trying to figure out the next phase of my parents' life and ours. I suppose it is only befitting that we close out this season with a guest who touches upon this mix of nostalgia, wandering and belonging in his work. So my family has a 40-year-plus history in Abu Dhabi. My grandfather was here in the 70s. My father came, I think, a year after the Federation was formed. Um, and then my parents left last year. That's Deepak Unnikrishnan. He's currently a senior lecturer of writing and literature and creative writing at NYU's Abu Dhabi campus. He's also an author and his book Temporary People, a work of fiction about Gulf narratives steeped in Malayalam and South Asian lingo, won the inaugural Restless Books Prize for New Immigrant Writing, the Hindu Prize and the Moor Prize. I grew up in Abu Dhabi. I wasn't born there, but I was taken there when I was, I think, 32 days old. It's a very specific number. I don't know if it's true, but it's, it's a good number to sort of, you know, start a conversation with. And then I never left until I was 20. Uh, and then I went to the States for around, I think, 15 years and change. Then I came back. So the Abu Dhabi connection is home-related, parent-related, uncle and aunt-related. 
friends-related. Um, it's all I knew until I left. What was it like growing up in Abu Dhabi? I mean, you don't think about it. You were bored, as children usually are when, you know, when they're growing up. Uh, there's nothing interesting you complain all the time. But now that you're older, when you think about what the city is, because now it's an industry, everyone wants to talk about the past, what it used to be like, you know, you have websites, you have articles. Uh, and that intrigues me personally, because as an adult, um, I'm sort of thinking like my father used to think when he was in Abu Dhabi, and he had talked to me about Kerala. You know, back in the day when I was 19, 18, this is what it used to be. And it's always drastic, <laughs> the way they talk about it. <laughs> I used to walk to school, and not just walk to school, miles and miles to school, things like that. But when I was a kid, I didn't think about that. I was too busy being a kid. You know, I had kid-like needs. Um, I wanted to play football. Mom wouldn't let me play football at night. So how do I lie to mom and then go play? Um, I didn't like school very much, but I liked English. How do I remain in school, pay attention to classes, pretend I'm paying attention to classes, and wait for English classes? Um, how do I have KFC every day of the week when KFC used to be interesting? Things like that. But as an adult, it's different. Um, it's different simply because my parents have aged. They're older people. And I have aged. And I sort of look back to what Abu Dhabi used to be, and I try and remember as much as I can. And I don't remember everything. So even when you ask me, what was it like growing up? I don't think I'm of that age where I can give you an answer where you look at me and go, what are you smoking? Uh, and I say that simply because, you know, I think when I'm 50 or 60 and then that question is posed to me, the answer would be very, very different. Now I'm sort of processing what has happened and that's going to take a little bit longer. Um, it's probably related to the classes I teach, why I teach what I teach, etc. You mentioned that your father's recollections of his childhood were quite drastic in there. Um, descriptions. I mean, it's just not my dad. It's everybody. Yeah. You know, of my father's age. But what do you do? You find your descriptions as drastic when you talk to your students now? Possibly. I mean, I have to catch myself sometimes because you know, um, and I have kids. I say kids; they're older. They're, they're freshmen. They're seventeen, eighteen, or they're seniors who've never been to Abu Dhabi, or they've lived in Abu Dhabi for a while, or they're from Abu Dhabi, as they identify as. And then when we talk about Hamdan Street, which is where I grew up. And I tell them, you know, back in the day, we only had KFC. Anytime I start a sentence with back in the day, <laughs> I sort of pause and say, just ignore that. <laughs> uh, let's try this again. Um, and I do that on purpose, I guess, simply because I don't want to romanticize everything. There were things that I liked and things that I didn't. But it's not just Abu Dhabi. It's even places like Chicago or, or you know, New York City, where I used to live. There are things that I like uh, or liked, and there are things that I don't like or didn't like. That's that's the way it is. But yeah, I think of I'm turning into my father, which is something that I tried not to do for a long, long time, but I don't think it can be helped anymore. It's such a bloody shame because I tried so hard <laughs> not to be him. Um, and I don't know why, uh, but I think I'm more and more like him because my aunts still look at me and go, you sound like your father, which is true. My father sounds like this. I have his baritone. Um, you know, your fingers are like your father's, etc., etc., and then they don't stop. So it's as though you have not one original component in your system. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's either like your father or your mother, and that's just boring after a while. You said that there were some things that you liked and some things that you don't like. Related to your childhood, not Abu Dhabi-centric, but what is it? what is the most vivid memory of what you liked and the most visceral memory of what you didn't like? 
So as far as what I liked goes, everything was close by. My parents were close by, my friends were close by, and Abu Dhabi wasn't a massive city. You could walk to places, which is changing now. Uh, back in the day, you really could walk to a neighborhood, and the neighborhood is right there. You play football, and you'd return. You'd have a shawarma below some bloody restaurant, and then you'd go home, and you were fine, right? Uh, what didn't I like? Well, this might not be a typical answer. I didn't like the fact that you had to drive in order to go to someplace interesting. Um, I come from a family where nobody drives, except my sister. So my father, oh God, all right, might as well say it because I started it. Uh, he took the driving test for years, 20 plus, which is probably a world record, I think. He passed the test and then he never drove in his life. Um, I took the driving test in the States because my friends told me I needed a driver's license. Passed the test. I drove maybe three or four times. I've never touched a car since 2008. You uh, are your father's son. I am my father's son. So, you know, th things like that. But, you know, but to be, if I'm being really frank about it, I didn't like the fact that you had to think about um, Kerala every now and again um, because that's where my parents are from. And it would come up in conversation. You know, when we returned to the homeland, and at some point it got really, really annoying. Because at the back of my head, I'm going, I know, we're going back, we're going back. You tell me that all the time. Let's just leave it and then live our own lives the way we want to live them. That sounds quite profound coming from someone who's in his late 30s, about to turn 40. When you're 12 and 13 and you present that, you know, sentence to your parents, it doesn't gel as well. Uh, and there are reasons for that. Um, because I was sort of making fun of what they valued. And I didn't value it as much. I understand it now, why they valued Kerala as much as they did. Um, I don't think I'll completely understand the sentiment, though, because I don't identify with Kerala as much as they did. The question of identity often comes up for children raised in the Gulf. Now, for the purpose of this episode, we're going to limit that question to a specific kind of Indian experience, since it isn't a one-size-fits-all experience. It also varies from individual to individual, and I think how we are introduced to our lives here plays a significant role in shaping our attitudes and opinions. I remember one of the first things my father told me about our move to Dubai was that our time was temporary, like our time on the planet, temporary. And as long as we are here, we must be mindful of our civic duties and be law-abiding residents, which frankly was standard advice from him when I went anywhere. So in a sense, we were almost already cultivating a relationship of detached attachment. So you love the place, enjoy the place, give back to the place, as long as you're here. But don't be greedy to hold on to it forever, because... Nothing lasts forever. And I think that's especially true for the Gulf-living non-resident Indian, or NRIs as we're called. In addition to knowing or even beginning to understand the temporal nature of our life here, it was a really odd experience going back to India over a summer break. This is something we discussed with Deepak as well later on, but in the 90s, the NRIs were almost mini-celebrities. The star status, of course, was reserved for the US returns, but there was this wide-eyed wonder, almost a, what kind of life are you living over there? As if we were doing something extraordinary. When in reality, we were going to school, taking naps, and doing homework just like they were back home. Where do you identify with? What do you mean? In terms of a sense of place or belonging. Place is where my people are. I don't identify with a state or a nation anymore. I used to. 
um, because <clears throat> I was told to. So I went to an Indian school, you know. It was called the Abu Dhabi Indian School. There was no question that it wasn't an Indian school. That's what we were trained to be, Indians. And it was fine for, for a while. But then you sort of start to question yourself or question your own understanding of what it means to be Indian. Uh, and it's a category, it's a categorization, which I didn't completely agree with as I grew older. So I decided to do something that made sense to me. I chose to pick cities that resonated with me. Abu Dhabi works, so that's why I tell people I'm from Abu Dhabi, um, because you can't sort of contradict that. What are you going to say? No, you're not. <laughs> and then I'd go, okay, fine. And then I'd just move on. Um, I, do, I don't identify with a nationality anymore. And I'm not saying that to be cool um, because, you know, I have an Indian passport. I know my limits. But I'm saying that because that's the truth. Um, I don't have an identity crisis either. So if you hear that and you go, oh, you don't know what you are, that's okay. You know, in a few years you'll understand who you want to be, yada, yada, yada. No, it's not that either. Uh, I'm completely comfortable with the fact that I... <laughs> don't have any allegiance with anything anymore. And I'm okay with that. So in other words, you know, India is the place. No, let me correct that. Kerala is my parents' place. It always will be. And I respect that. Um, Abu Dhabi is my place. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if I leave, I'm going to be, you know, a mess. That I'm going to be crying at the airport, um, hugging a lamppost, you, you know, or an immigration officer and saying, please let me back in. None of that. I'm going to leave and I'm not going to look back. And I'm curious though, like, because you mentioned like you had this sort of realization and I'm sure it was built over time, but yeah. was there a, when, when did that happen for you in, in terms of like just sort of seeing that? Was it when you were in school or did it happen after you left? I think I had to make a decision because, you know, when you're younger, because you get told all the time by your parents, you're going to leave at some point or we are going to leave at some point and you understand it, but you don't necessarily get it because it hasn't happened yet, right? Uh, and they're coming at this situation from a very specific place, which is they left their hometowns or their cities or whatnot to come here. And they're thinking about their hometowns or their cities, and that's where they would like to return to. I never had that experience. Um, you know. And like I said, I was, what, 32 days old. It's not like I knew the world. And in my head, I'm going, when I am 32 years old, I will return to the place that you took me from. Of course not. I didn't have any of that ex those experiences. However, when I left, I was 20 years old and I left for the States. And in the States, you get asked all the time, where are you from? It's a very typical American question. And I would stumble a little bit. I realized that I was missing people. Uh, that's basically what I was missing. I was attaching people to things and spaces and places but it was the people. You take the people away, um, there's nothing left. So technically, home is in your head. It's stuff that you take with you. So I had language. I speak Malayalam, so I have that. So the minute I stopped speaking Malayalam, my parents, and I've been saying this for a while now, in the beginning I didn't know why I said it, but now I know, and the sentence is, when I stopped speaking Malayalam, my parents ceased to exist. And for me, that's the truth, because I don't see myself living in Kerala. Although, you know, Deepak the Great says it now, says this now, who knows what's going to happen 15 years from now, if I still have an Indian passport. Hello, homeland is probably what I'm going to say, right? But the language is something I took with me. 
Uh, I carried it with me. I still have it with me. You can't take that away from me. Then I have the memories, um, which I basically had to return to repeatedly or periodically to figure out what I was missing or was I missing anything at all. And again, it was people, friends, um, and my parents and my sibling too. So if I was missing people and I was associating people with languages in certain spaces and places, then the countries mattered less. However, it's really hard for me to talk about my parents without talking about Abu Dhabi. Um, forget the UAE, Abu Dhabi, um, because that's where they spent a good chunk of their lives. They'll probably die having spent most of their lives in Abu Dhabi than elsewhere. That's important to me. It doesn't have to be important to anybody else. And I need you to know that um, because that's important. Why? Not sure. When you look at the portrayal of the Gulf NRI, especially within the Indian canon of literature or entertainment, it's very distinct. You've either got the art house Kerala films, the sort of tackle, <laughs> there isn't a very Are you being polite when you reality. say art house? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the very harsh realities. Yeah. Or if you look at more popular mainstream Bollywood culture, you'd see like the the good son goes to America and, you know, mm. when he returns, he has the whole village waiting to welcome him back. But then the good-for-nothing son is shipped off on a boat in the yeah. middle of the night so that no one sees him and it's usually to the Gulf. <laughs> um, so is... The Gulf NRI, I've always, non-resident Indian, you know, just to expand that, has a very distinct identity um, in its way of representation. Some of it perhaps true, but a lot of it also exaggerated. I, I'm posing this question to both of you because you're also Abu Dhabi boys. Men. I didn't know you were in Abu Dhabi. Well, well, Abu, Dhabi well, yeah. Abu Dhabi boys. Really? Even holding out on me, they had no idea which yeah. batch. No, I uh, so I left. In I have 2000. a question. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you just got very excited. I couldn't help it. So, so, I mean, you can hug later. <laughs> Why isn't there more material that captures all of these sort of textures that you're talking about? Where is this gap, and why aren't we seeing more honest, authentic storytelling? of these experiences of the Gulf migrant, of the Indian migrants in the Gulf? So I'm going to push back a little, and then I'll, um, I'll be curious to hear what Charag has to say as well, because in Kerala, the Gulf has always been present um, for a while, pre-oil and post-oil. So if you go to Kori Code, um, people will tell you stories about sailors who used to come from the Gulf to trade. Post-oil, so we're talking about the 70s now, Films were made about the Gulf. Um, a good example, a film from the 80s would be Varavayalpa, which was starring, I believe, Mohanlal. Um, I think the actual way to say it is superstar Mohanlal, megastar Mohanlal, hyperstar. I don't know what it is. It, it, yeah, whatever it is. But he was someone who's working in the Gulf, decides to return to Kerala to set up a business, uh, and then he's confronted with and a bunch of other things, very Kerala-specific. Um, and that was a very layered and textured film. I think part of the problem is when people think about the Gulf narrative, they're also looking at stuff that's very English-centric. In Malayalam, there is a fair bit of history with the Gulf, and writers have looked at the Gulf. It's just that not all of them have been translated, which is a shame. But I think something that you mentioned earlier is true, that there is, in Kerala at least, I can't speak for the rest of India, there's this tendency to romanticize the Gulf Malayali. 
especially if the Gulf Malayali is male and has left without family. So the Gulf Malayali is a stalwart. The Gulf Malayali, you know, is the sacrificial lamb. The Gulf Malayali is someone who is striving on behalf of the rest of the family, who returns in the 80s anyway, with the VCP and the VHS and the radio and the Kit Kats made in the UK and all of that. And for two months, the Gulf Malayali will be celebrated before he returns to a certain hellish existence. And, you know, I'm being facetious on purpose. The hellish existence is couched um, with the fact that uh, there are certain privileges that he will not enjoy. He, he will not get to hear his sister uh, touch his wife. Uh, if he's a bachelor, you know, he will not get to play with his friends who have not gone to the Gulf like him, et cetera, et cetera, all of that. And that, to me, is problematic. And that, to me, is problematic simply because the Gulf Malayali is almost supposed to be extraordinary all the time. When, in my head, I think it's okay to be ordinary, and you have plenty of ordinary Malayalis walking around in Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and the other Emirates. My father is ordinary. Um, he lucked out. Um, came to the Gulf and he tried to make a living here and he didn't do so great. But because he didn't do so great, um, the way my father is talked about in family circles isn't necessarily fun. It's funny. So I've been talking about my father for a year and a half now. But every time I talk about him, I want to make sure I get him right. And I don't. I never do. And that bothers me a little. Simply because my father is not doing the talking, I'm talking on his behalf. Um, and that's not fair. But I also come from a long line of men who do not talk. I think what I'm getting at is, my father struggled in the Gulf. But there were also moments of joy that I was privy to because I was his son. Because when he came home, I was present. I saw him. And when I came home, he was present. I saw him. So we had moments where we could catch each other off guard when we were just being human or normal or ordinary. You don't get that in films, in Malayalam films anyway. Um, you don't get those moments where you're not doing anything, you're just there, you're just present. That's where the nuance comes in. Also, in Kerala, I think there's a lack of understanding as to what really goes on in the Gulf. Because the people who return, they don't talk about it. Uh, they talk about the highs and the lows. They don't talk about the in-betweens. You don't have a conversation about, you know when we had Baskin-Robbins, when Baskin-Robbins first came to town? That's a conversation you have with people from the Gulf, who know the Gulf. But that's not a conversation you have with relatives who have never stepped on an aircraft. Um, because there's no reference point. Because those conversations don't happen, all they get to see are the Kit Kats and the VCPs and the duty-free bags and the fact that someone returned penniless, uh, or they returned with their hopes shattered, or they returned with not one house or two, but three. And they go, wow. And I think that's part of the problem. When you kind of look back and you try to distill, you're only looking at an end result and you forget like the 40 years that it took to get to a certain point. The life, the life. time. Yeah, and, and he's totally right. I mean, you always, even when you look at any depiction, you're always looking at, you're, you're creating the, a story, and so you're picking the high points, and you're picking the low points, and you're kind of not doing the day-to-day -day stuff, right? Like, how often would you have a conversation, because I definitely don't even now, like about the fact that in Abu Dhabi, when my dad used to work, he'd work 8 to 1, and then we had this three-hour break in the afternoon. We would just, like, sit at home because everything was shut. 
Yeah. And like nap time was a very regular thing, even yeah. for my parents, because yeah. what would you do for three hours? And then he would go and, w- and go back to work at five and then come back at 10. Like that's the kind of lifestyle we led yeah. for the longest time. Time spent doing nothing is important too. Because I remember my father coming home at one, uh, coming to sleep. He'd eat and then he'd sleep and we'd all sleep. <laughs> and how, how do you write or make a film about... This is us in the Gulf in 1987. Yeah, this family bonded over the fact that they had nap time every single day, right? <laughs> right. Like you, that's not a story right. you would tell. But, but I think what's key there is the fact that they were all present in the same house, sleeping in the same house, which is a luxury and a privilege. Your parent, I mean, you've obviously talked about your father's sort of struggles in the Gulf. You've mentioned that. How did he feel when you returned to Abu Dhabi to join as a lecturer at possibly one of the best universities in the region? No, I don't think they knew how to take it because I used to live on campus, on Saadiyat. If you've never been to Saadiyat in Abu Dhabi, it's a lovely space, but it's also an elite space. And I used to live on campus. And he used to have Doman, and, who used to look like my father, basically, and me. And they were very uncomfortable in the beginning because they didn't know that wasn't their terrain. And I don't think my father has completely understood what's happened to his son since he's been back. And I think that's the best thing, simply because as far as he's concerned, and this is a very, probably a Desi way of thinking through this, my son has a job. <laughs> he has a housing allowance, so clearly he doesn't have to pay rent. <laughs> um, and he's okay. Uh, and, he, and he lives in a skyscraper. So he's done better than me. That's all he cares about. Um, occasionally, you know, he, he'll dangle the, my son is a lecturer for New York University <laughs> um, with pride, but he doesn't dangle that carrot often. Um, I think he's proud, um, but I think more so than being proud, I, th- I think he's just relieved. Uh, and that relief comes because, you know, my father came from a space where money was very, very difficult to come by. Um, my mother basically wanted me to graduate, find a job, and buy a Corolla. <laughs> Those were her, you know... Benchmarks of success. Yes, ba- ba- basically. So when those are the expectations, I, I think I've sort of overshot the mark a little bit. But also, I guess, like you said, viewed from that Daisy lens of success, the fact that their son is settled <laughs> must yeah. be quite settling for them, right? Yeah, no, I, th- I think they're happy about that. But, but I think... For me, I'm also quite practical um, because I know I'm not going to have this job for life. I don't have tenure. I'm not tenure track. If my employers are listening to this, I don't have tenure. Not tenure track. Get the hint. No, but, you know, what I'm, what I'm saying is I don't know how, how long I will have this job. But I have it now. Um, because I have it now, I'm okay. In fact, I'm more than okay. I'm more okay than my father will ever get to experience and that sort of breaks my heart a little bit. Do they have the, because as a parent, I'm sure there must be an enormous sense of relief, as you said, and also equally some sense of having done something right somewhere that at least their child doesn't have to experience that fear and insecurity of not having enough or having to worry about the future. Ideally, the answer should be yes to that question. But my family (laughs) 
has had its fair share of luck. The reason I'm in this position now is because my father won the lottery. Like literally? Literally. Oh. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you came across this much, but there was such a fascination among NRIs with the raffles when we were growing up in the UAE. So there were the duty-free raffles in both the airports, then the insane car raffles during the Dubai shopping festival each year. I do remember the celebration around each win, live TV announcements and the photographs of winners in the newspapers. And it was such a talking point each month, you know, when the results would be published, how it felt like this person had a touch from Lady Luck that transformed their lives completely. For Mr. Onikrishnan, Deepak's father, that could not have been more true. We'll hear more about that right after this break. Welcome back. You're listening to the season finale of Karama Sutra, chronicles from communities we've grown up with. I'm Vinita Bhadwaj. And I'm Charak Desai. And on today's episode, we're exploring the life of the Gulf NRI that's non-resident Indian, through our own journeys and that of Deepak Unikrishnan, senior lecturer at NYU Abu Dhabi's writing program. His book, Temporary People, was reviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker, among others. Before the break, Deepak started telling us about his father winning the Abu Dhabi duty-free raffle. For many frequent flyers who have passed through the airports of Dubai and Abu Dhabi, the raffles are a familiar sight and draw. There's a lot of curiosity around them, and an article published in 2018 set out to explain why people from the South Indian state of Kerala constituted one of the highest number of winners in the UAE's raffles. That year alone, eight out of the 27 winners of the Dubai Duty Free were from the state. Among the reasons highlighted were that buying a raffle ticket is a fairly common cultural characteristic among men from Kerala. In 2008, my father won the Abu Dhabi Duty Free lottery. Because he won that, with his winnings, he paid off all his debt. It's, it's not a family secret per se. I don't, I don't advertise it as much, but I'm talking about it more and more now for a couple of reasons. One is there's this understanding that when you come here, you work on behalf of the family, you do enough, you do it for the sake of the children. And I'm all for that, and I understand it. And I've witnessed it uh, in my own family and in the families of others. However, in my family, we were really down on our luck. Um, my father just needed a break. The fact that it came in the form of a lottery ticket is something that none of us expected except my father. Um, because he won the lottery and paid off his debt and put the end-of-service gratuity towards building a house in Kerala, which he couldn't finish because there wasn't enough money left over, the house was finished by my sister and me. So in other words, everyone's put their money into this house, which was completed three years ago. And that's why my parents left last year, because they finally had a place, a literal place to return to where they could live. And I say this simply because in 2008, when he won it, I was working in New York City, um, trying to help my folks out, but I wasn't making enough money. I was working for a nonprofit. Because he won it, I started making plans to leave the job I was in because I was working on a book and I wanted to finish it. So in 2011, November, I put a notice saying, I have to work on something. I need to finish this book. I decided to write because all of a sudden I had time at my disposal and I didn't have to worry about my parents, which was a luxury. I'd never had that before. Um, and that's how I ended up in Abu Dhabi. 
simply because I was working on stuff. I had a little bit of a portfolio, which I submitted as part of my application. Um, and then I returned simply because I was allowed to return on the basis of everything that I had done in between 2008 and 2012. Before 2008, the reason my father could purchase a lottery ticket, which he wasn't supposed to in the first place because money was tight, was, be was the following. So I went to school, an Indian school, with someone called Sharath Chandran, who was the head boy, right? Um, and Sharath and I are close, but not close. In other words, when we meet, we talk as if we've never seen each other for a long, long time. But when we don't see each other, it's as though he doesn't exist, for me anyway. For him, he might feel differently. And I mention his name because when I was in the U.S. and I was struggling with funds, and I didn't know who to talk to, because like I said, I come from a long family of males who don't speak. I'd call Sharat up and he'd ask me, how are you doing? And I'd be honest with him. And so he asked me to come home once and he wrote me a check to pay off my tuition. The same year, Professor Ted Chesler wrote me a check to pay off my tuition. And the book that I wrote is dedicated to Professor Ted Chesler. Um, that's how I could complete my education. In 2007, Sharath gave me a call saying that a mutual friend of ours, whose nickname was Soap, said that he had a little bit of money to spare and he'd lend it to my dad. We're talking like $20,000. We're not talking like, you know, 300 dirhams or something. And I asked him, what do you mean money to spare? He said he'd give it to you. Um, then I told him, I don't know if I could ever pay this back. My father will never be able to pay this back. He said, that doesn't matter. So he wrote me a check. I wired that money to my dad, which bought him time. Somewhere between that transaction and my father's own understanding of the world, he bought a lottery ticket. And then he won. And then I made a phone call <laughs> to this friend of ours and said, I can pay you back. And he said, no, but there's no hurry. I said, my father just won the lottery, take it. So when I say luck, I really mean it. So this is not just about sacrifice and work, uh, you know, things falling into place so that the children can enjoy the fruits of their parents' labor. This is luck. This is also people... I know standing up for me and strangers standing up for a person that never met my father. I mean, I'm not religious, but I came close. I'll tell you that. That's the history of my family in the Gulf. My father is one of the hardest working people I've ever met. And I don't say that because he's my dad. He's He's OCD, he's, he's, he has many flaws, but he's a reasonably good human being. He needed a break. I couldn't give it to him. So if I had been the dutiful son in the States, I would have taken that job that would have paid a lot of money, wired the money back so that my parents were okay. I decided to be the artist I decided to do things differently, whereas my sister, the baby of the family, looked after my parents, sacrificed on behalf of my parents, 
And I can't make that up. And I can't fix any of that. But I tell the story I do tell to my students simply because I need them to understand that for me this is not a game or an exercise in academia where we talk about people who live here, um, you know, who come here, who sacrifice on behalf of extended family members, and then who return to their home countries content. So, yeah. So when I think of Abu Dhabi, I also think about the Abu Dhabi duty-free <laughs> and the lottery, and I'm glad it exists because it saved my family. Return to Abu Dhabi. What was it like coming back to a city that has defined your life in, I mean, so profoundly, and where you are now going to begin anew? Or did it not feel like it was a fresh start? Did it feel like it was continuing from where you left off? So I grew up in a setting where I didn't think I had the intellect or the mind to sort of occupy a space like NYU Abu Dhabi. Not because I didn't feel I wasn't good enough. I just didn't think it was part of something I could aspire towards. But I think I can answer your question properly by basically responding with something that I tell my students. Because I grew up in a family without much means in the Gulf. My mother came from a family of means, but then they lost everything. Well, my father didn't. Because I came from a family without much um, means here, our ambition got capped. So there were certain things we didn't even imagine because we didn't assume we could imagine them. Um, teaching in a space like NYU Abu Dhabi, which, as Gerard was saying, didn't exist earlier. Or, say, applying to Harvard or Yale. Um, in my head, what I would do is I'd just apply to a university in the States because any university would count. So back to the return, um, we always talked about departure from Abu Dhabi. Um, we never really talked about other scenarios where you leave and then you return. What's all that about? So I didn't know what to expect. I was a little hesitant uh, simply because I didn't know what was around anymore. Um, the people I went to school with, would I see them? If I saw them, would we have a conversation? Yes, I saw them. Yes, we have conversations, but we have conversations about school days. Um, I don't know what they've turned into, what sort of human beings they've become, and they really don't know what's happened to me either. But then we play football together. That's, even now? Yeah, even now. Um, you, know, you know, we pretend we can move like we could when we were 17. We cannot, but we pretend we can. Um, and then that's how we communicate frankly about our state. You mentioned the ordinary earlier, right? That is an ordinary moment for me, playing football with my friends uh, and us thinking that we were, we were really, really good. We used to be, not anymore. Um, but then there's also the other aspect of it. Because when I started teaching at NYU Abu Dhabi, uh, I'd be sort of categorized as, oh, he's the guy who grew up here. And I'd have colleagues walk up to me and ask me all sorts of random questions, like I was the authority on Abu Dhabi. And at some point, I think I was making up answers because I was too embarrassed to tell them, I don't know where the best Punjabi food is. Um, so I'll just mention a street, <laughs> hoping that there'd be something there that they could just walk into. Or what was here in 1986? I don't know because I was a kid. I didn't tell them that, but you know. Um, and that was interesting because all of a sudden, it's as though I had history to offer and I could contribute to the conversation about what the city used to be. 
But then there's also something else because when I was away in the States, uh, when people used to ask me, why is Abu Dhabi home for you or this idea of Abu Dhabi? And I tell them, um, well, I grew up there, but I think I'll only completely understand what the place has done to me after my parents leave. Because once they leave, there's nothing to hold me to the city anymore, uh, unless my sibling continues to stay. Then I have to make a frank um, decision as to how I view the city. So my parents left last year um, for good, in the sense that they returned for visits, but they're, they're gone now. And my mother, as she was packing the suitcase, decided to buy Kit Kat's Tang, uh, a tin of Nido. Nido, Nido's <laughs> this, a big one. Yeah. This is not 1987 or 1993. Nobody needs Nido in Kerala. But that's what my mother bought. Uh, and when I asked her, why are you buying, and this was shipped back to Kerala, <laughs> by the way. Why are you buying this? No, because someone might need it. Like, who in God's... So, but, you're try, but you're also trying to be respectful because you understand that there are certain things that have become routine for them. Uh, and it's sort of important to respect the fact that it has become routine for them. But you also want to make fun of it, which I did. And uh, why would you buy Tangma? It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then we'd have an argument about that. Could I write a story about this? Of course not. Is it going to be published in The New Yorker? Never. But it's important. Um, It's important simply because it is an exchange between mother and son. The major difference, and this is a fundamental difference, is my mother is now an old woman. Uh, and I am the 30-something-year-old son. So Deepak talking about his father was intensely personal. And I guess that's also what makes him such a fantastic writer. Listening to him, were you compelled to revisit your own relationship with your father? Well, I wouldn't say revisit as much as it was quite eye-opening in that it made me realize that my expat life was really a subset of my father's. It's so easy when you've been living here for as long as we have to think of this as just our life, right? But when you start peeling at those layers, you realize its foundations were built by him and not me. Exactly. I wouldn't be in the country I'm in if it wasn't for the choices made by my father. I am deeply convinced that my relationship with the place I'm in today is inextricably linked to my relationship with my father. And that relationship has had its own exploration and journey, its own coming of age, it has evolved, matured, and is in a wonderful space today. I imagine the pandemic has had some impact on your father's plans, though. Well, under normal circumstances, my family would have returned to India after my father's retirement. In other words, following a neat and tidy script. But they're still here today, and oddly, it feels right. We're here together, in a country that has been our home, because so much of our time has been here, together. No, but what's interesting is when we asked Amma, Amma, what would you like? This is for her birthday. She said, I want a cuckoo clock. And she had mentioned it for two or three years, and my sister and I had been stalling, hoping she'd forget. She doesn't forget. So we buy the bloody thing. And then at some point um, after we bought it, I started realizing that my mother is buying things that my grandmother used to have, the cuckoo clock and you know other stuff. Um, she's replicating or duplicating or trying to anyway that house she lost. She's not talking about it. But because of what she does, I'm noticing things. And that's what I mean, where 
there's something about Kerala, maybe it's in the water, I have no idea, where people don't talk, where it's really difficult to talk, where they do things, they have these performative things that they do to sort of compensate for everything that they've lost, at least in my family, so I don't want to generalize. So you go, okay, um, so there are costs to this. Here are the costs, uh, and they might not look like the costs that you're envisioning when you're thinking about what happens to human beings when they work or live elsewhere and they return to their home, home spaces or home countries. But there are costs. Um, and I suppose that's what my family has been trying to sort of grapple with. How do you talk about these things? Can you talk about these things? Should you talk about these things? And occasionally as you talk about these things, can you make random stupid jokes about cuckoo clocks? Thank you so much for joining us as we brought you this season of Karama Sutra. This episode was hosted by me, Vinita Bhardwaj, and produced by me, Anchirag Desai, who also edits the show. With support from Abhishek Venkata Subramanian, Sukhena Kazmi, and Zaina Bujani, a huge thank you to Deepak Krishnan for sharing his story with us and taking time to come to the studio earlier this year. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our episodes. Do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on IMDb as we're on there now too. Or connect with us on Instagram at karama.sutra. The more reviews and ratings we get, it really helps people discover the show. Karama Sutra is part of the Amaya Media Podcast Network. You can listen to all of our episodes for free in your favorite podcast player, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and even apps such as Ngami and Deezer. We'll be back after the summer with our next season on the 8th of October. Until then, we wish you good health. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>